All right, everyone, welcome back to the weekly recap of On the Margin. I'm your co-host, Michael Ippolito. I'm joined, as always, by my debonair co-host, Tyler Neville. De- debonair this week. You got a new adjective this week. I'll take you that. You had a big week. You it's earned better, it. Better There's than a lot of good trouble. content coming out of you this week. Yeah, so you get debonair this week. Uh, Love that. I as a, feel very sophisticated. Yeah. Um, well, keep it up, buddy. We got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about this week, just as a general overview. On our last episode, we really focused a lot on, there wasn't a lot going on in the macro world, and we really kind of honed in on some of the developments in crypto. This week, it's almost the opposite. Lots of developments in macro land. Uh, we're going to be talking about this blow up at Archegos Capital Management. We're going to be talking about Biden's infrastructure plan uh, and the move up in the dollar. And then we're going to spend some time on Visa settling uh, transactions in USDC. And then finally, we are going to close it out with Morgan Stanley Goldman moving further into Bitcoin. So a lot of interesting ground to cover this week. Um, For sure. On the, on the Archigo stuff, there were some great competing narratives out there. Ben Hunt, uh, our friend over at Epsilon Theory, he had some strong opinions on this. Oh, yes. Yeah. Probably one of the best uh, titles for a blog post I've read in recent years. Tiger can't change its stripes. Just wow, chef's kiss. That was uh, that's excellent. <laughs> okay, man. Let's let's get into it with uh, with our Kigos here. You want to give us kind of just an overview of of what happened, who Bill Wang is, what this fund represents, and like what what's just going on? Why are we all hearing so much about our Kigos? Yeah, our Kigos, our Archigos, arch egos, arch egos. That's yes, what, what Carson Glock calls it, and <laughs> I am using him as the the uh, expert in everything arch egos because it, this thing goes so deep. It goes mm. so deep. Anyway, basically what happened was this guy, Bill Huang, uh, levered up his fund, his family office, five to 10 X. You know, people think it was 10 billion levered 10 times to $100 billion in exposure. And one of a couple things probably happened. No one really knows and basically got a margin call and had to liquidate a lot of their positions. That's the headline story. I think this thing goes so, so deep, it's disgusting. Um, But we can talk about that. I I tend to lean on the Ben Hunt side of things where, you know, you see insane leverage like this. That's not just one person levering his fund. Like there are, you know, many people involved to allow this. So Mm. uh, what's your read? All right, let's give a little back. Let's set the stage. And I think the reason why this is so interesting is because there are very competing narratives about it. And there's what I'll call the Ben Hunt perspective, which I tend to agree with you on. Uh, I lean more that way. And then there's the Aaron Brown perspective. And the Ben Hunt perspective is this is a disgrace, right? There was some really bad behavior here. This thing goes deep. It is disgusting. It's everything that is wrong with the hedge fund industry. Then there's the Aaron Brown uh, perspective, which Aaron Brown used to be the chief uh, risk management officer, I think at AQR, so very large hedge fund. And his perspective is, look, guys, this was some poor risk management from, from our boy, Billy the Kid, but overall, nothing nothing seriously wrong going on here. But let's let's set the scene with who this guy is, right? So Boeing, he's a, he's a tiger cub, right? So he's one of these uh, kind of luminary hedge fund managers that used to work with Julian Robertson back at Tiger. After Tiger famously closed back in 2000, after the dot-com bubble, he set up this hedge fund called Tiger Asia, I believe is the name. Uh, yeah. It was an arm of Tiger, yeah. Arm of Tiger, okay. We ran it for about 12 years. It was seated by Julian Robertson, doing very well, but 
in 2012, he got hit uh, with criminal charges by the SEC, had to shut down his hedge fund, turn it into a family office, pay $60 million. Very uh, Steve Cohen-esque, kind of the result there, or uh, the guy from Billions, Bobby Axelrod style. Um, So, you know, fast forward till now, he's running a family office. He's he's running about $10 billion, which is largely, from my understanding, his personal net worth, right? Which... That's just a stunning element. That's basically got wiped out. That's that's one of the greatest destructions of wealth in the shortest periods of time. So whatever you think about this guy, I mean, you know, there are only probably 200 people on the planet that can even understand what it's like to lose that much money because no one has that much money. Um, So that's another part of the story. And then, so those two juxtapositions of the story where the AQR guy, you know, he's so mainstream, like what a, what a great read. He was, was a, margin call you know like you don't get 50 billion dollars in leverage and and no one's asking any questions that doesn't just happen and mm. you know what the the market has been relatively there's been no contagion from this yet um mm. so it's isolated but you know they all thought like bernie madoff was isolated and and lehman was isolated it's it's showing that there's so much free money that there's so much leverage in the system that Goldman had to offer them a, a massive credit line. Nomura had to offer it. Credit Suisse had to offer it. Because they, they make so much money from these financing things that you actually need to compete with your competitors. So it's a sign that the whole system is leveraged in one way or another, right? The, the key is, is this isolated or is this you know also elsewhere out there. And we're seeing like, we're adding up a couple more of these things. The green cell thing in, in the UK, Credit Suisse has been involved in. We're seeing, you know, just, just a lot of, a lot of funny stuff going on, which I call smoke right now because it's not fire, but like when they start adding up, you're like, oh my God, what is going on here? Mm. Having trouble seeing through all the smoke. Well, the, the other interesting thing is talk a little bit about the arrangement that Bill Wang had with these prime brokers, the way he was getting exposure, right? Because it's not like he actually went out and bought these positions. He actually had total return swaps. So explain a little bit about how that product, what is that product and how did it allow Bill to get the leverage that he did? Yes. So it basically is essentially just an agreement between you and the broker. Mm-hmm. You, you have an ISDA right? Which basically gives you the ability to borrow money from them on the cheap and they give you leverage. So you hold that position on Goldman's books, on Morgan's books, on Nomura's books, and you don't hold it on your balance sheet at Archegos. So if you look, go look at the holders of GSX. And this one is why I think Bill Huang is fishy. If it happened just in Viacom and just in a couple other ones, but he owned like dog shit companies. What do you really, wait, what do you really think Tyler? You're always sugarcoat. I can never get to the, what you actually really think. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) But so this GSX thing, Carson block and literally probably seven or eight short sellers. And even the whole Chinese retail crowd basically all knows this thing's an actual fraud. Like it's Mm -hmm. a, it's a, it's 70% of its user base is fake. 90% of its revenues are fake. There's, seven or eight really reliable short sellers have come out published on this thing saying like, I don't know why it's going up. Like it's so, it's so weird. Turns out that Bill Huang and his compadres from Tung Yue and other, other 
you know, Chinese hedge funds or family offices basically choked the float of this specific stock. And it skyrocketed like four to four X from $30 to like 120 caused that gamma squeeze effect that we're seeing in GameStop as well. Um, so it was a complete stock manipulation trick. Mm. So where they get the leverage is, and this is inconspicuous is they get it from all these, these brokers. You know, if you look at the, the holder base, it doesn't even show that he owned any of it, which shows you that all these brokers are complicit in, in this thing. They gave a fraudulent company that like $30 billion of valuation. And Carson said, at best, it's it's a bad it's immoral. At mm -hmm. worst, it's really illegal. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's where I stand on it. If if it was other stocks, you know, bigger stocks, we probably wouldn't be talking about this. But GSX is like a fraud, and this guy is preaching like Christianity, and you know, externally, he's got all the signs of a sociopath con artist, which kind of Bernie Madoff did too, right? So that's where, you know, the 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 Aaron guy from AQR, that's such a, that's such a bread and butter. Like, come on, dude. You think in this day and age where fifty billion dollars, it's like, oh, it was just a little margin call. Like, you're so institutionalized. I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> he's yeah. also talking his own book because he's like a systematic guy. Mm. Well, so there you go. So the reason we brought up that history of Bill Wang, right, in his, let's call them run-ins with the SEC and I think the DOJ as well, is that this agreement that he had with his prime brokers, uh, you know, if he had actually gone out and held these stocks on his book, he would be subject to more regulatory oversight. But the fact that he, only what he actually owned was a contract with, you know, Morgan Stanley, Goldman, Credit Suisse, Nomura, that's all the regulators see on his books. Right. Mm -hmm. So what the allegation is, what Ben Hunt kind of hints at is that, okay, this agreement that he entered into, this way of gaining exposure actually allowed him less regulatory oversight, which on its own isn't necessarily suspicious. But when you look at what he was investing in, some of his prior investment strategies and what he's been indicted for in the past, doesn't paint such a good picture. Now, the other thing is you, you kind of gave bunny ears on this margin call. So mm -hmm. let's talk about that because the other implication here, what is, what is kind of being whispered about is that the big no-no that Bill Wang committed was he pledged the same collateral to fund trades at multiple different prime brokers, right? So one of the reasons, so Goldman, they were the first one to begin selling and liquidating positions and their speculation because they realized, they realized this essentially, that the collateral that Archegos had pledged to them was actually pledged to multiple other prime brokers as well, which obviously would be very worrisome. Mm -hmm. So there's that whole dynamic to this as well. Yeah. And that would be just fraud, right? If that was actually the case. I think it's just an institutional failure. The, the irony of these giant firms like Goldman and Morgan and, you know, Nomura is they, they have ultimate compliance at the lower levels. But when it gets to the upper level, it's probably like, oh, Bill Huang, check the box. He's good for 50 billion. And I joked around in one of my newsletters this week where it's like, I just refinanced my house. That was a full cavity search. They, we have people coming and it wasn't even that much. It's, you know, comparatively, it's not even that risky. And I'm doing like three weeks of paperwork and they're giving me like, you know, here's my paychecks and, and 
someone's coming to my house today as a notary and Bill Wong just gets a, here's 50 billion, you know, like how, I mean, this is, this should be a national story about how imbalanced society is. And I, I actually think it's a seminal turning point from that capital to labor type thing where, you know, we're trying, we're not playing on the same playing fields and everybody knows it. And it's, it's that, this is one of those moments where you go, okay, I only remember this and that's going to be a reason why the pendulum starts swinging the other way. Yeah. The other dynamic that I think is interesting here is there was some agreement between the primes kind of figured out that this was all a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and they all kind of got together. So it was Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse and Nomura. And it seems like they basically had an agreement uh, that they weren't going to immediately start selling this collateral. Right. Because that would be damaging to all of them. Then Goldman, in classic Goldman fashion, just said, no, actually, I'm going to go ahead and sell that. Um, I guess maybe this is an outsider perspective looking in. I'm just why does Goldman have the trust that it does? There are just so many instances of them doing things like this. It's. Yeah. On one side, you could say they just like they risk managed this incredibly well. Mm -hmm. Here's a great inside scoop. This is hilarious. So I worked at KBW as a small investment bank in 2007 and mm -hmm. they had a meeting where JP Morgan guys who were these cool like mortgage backed security guys came, came in and they were like, hey, we got a deal for you guys. We're going to give you these mortgage backed securities at a discount. We'll sell them off to you. You guys can buy a little piece of them. Then you sell it off to, to your friends at a, you know, a, a bid, you know, a higher bid. This is the stuff that happens behind the scenes at these banks when they have too much exposure in an area and it, it starts going bad, right? Except that one was levered 30x, you know, subprime was, you know, those, those banks were levered even more. But they all, they all sell, you know, They'll, they'll keep selling dog shit to the, the public. I mean, this GSX thing is amazing. It, it's a $30 billion fraud that was literally gave value to it by a daisy chain of messed up incentives and like beating earnings and all this other stuff. I would love to know what percentage of, of earnings Bill Huang was for, for these banks. Um, but yeah, inside scoop is it? You know, they all are competing against each other, but they're all in it together. They they, yeah. they glom on to like a narrative. And what I think is equity financing is a because they don't make money on commissions anymore. And this is mm. a little bit. Tell me if I'm going down a rabbit hole. Commissions went from five cents a share to like 0.5 cents a share, depending on how you execute it. And, and these guys used to make so much money off commissions, it didn't matter. Now they make money off total return swaps. It's basically, it's equity financing where you lend, you know, you own the stuff on your books and you basically charge someone an interest rate. And, and if you do that on super, super leverage, that, that money adds up to like a good chunk of earnings. So they're, they're basically making up a lot of those commissions by doing this stuff on their balance sheets now. And I think that's the real canary in the coal mine is that the business is shrinking. And this is what we talk about all the time, the, the, the movement from legacy finance to digital assets is anytime you get pricing power that's dropping and your commissions are falling, fees on the buy side are falling, it's the markets are eating eating the world type. Yeah, structural decline. Yeah. So you always got to, it's an arbitrage. 
you bet against stuff that's commoditized and you if there's a premium coinbase look at coinbase profitable trading at 117 billion dollar you know valuation on ftx that money finds its way to things that have pricing power in innovations and growth and i think this whole leverage thing was is just the beginning it's the smoke that we're seeing from these these brokerages that are kind of dying like they're making money off SPACs, IPOs. The IPOs should drive it, really. But it's not making up for all the death of the rest of the business. Yeah, absolutely. Went well, down <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. And honestly, these, these banks aren't making much money on Bill Wang anymore. Actually, the, the figure that I, that I saw in that Bloomberg article was uh, that looks like Credit Suisse and Nomura are on the the real losing end of this trade, and they might be facing losses of up to $2 billion undisclosed. Mm -hmm. But that is not chump change even for even for them. That's pretty significant. So Yeah, it was like two years of profit or something for Credit Suisse. Yeah, that sucks. Honestly, though, the biggest, I mean, we talked about this a little bit at the opening of this. I am not feeling sorry for Bill Wang at all here. But man, to go from $10 billion and basically have that all wiped out in the span of a month, how, dude, what? How, how do you wake up? What do you wake up? You wake up, you're a billionaire. You don't have to worry about money for the rest of your life. You're king of the world. You know, throw, government throw probably lets you in. A... Yeah. But here, here's the thing. This is why I think it's so fishy is like, it's screaming at you. This is one of those things that doesn't pass the sniff test. This guy was preaching like super Christianity while levering his fund up and lost the most money. That is a degenerate gambler's mentality. That is not a an uber Christian mentality where it's like conservatism and, and all this other stuff. Like I love the extremes of, of society because it usually shows like the most giant hypocrisy and it makes the best movies and it's like – but that is the perfect sign. Like this guy externally preached all this stuff but levered his fund up. That is – that's sociopathic. Like I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, but come on. Why would you be doing that if you were worth 10 billion? It makes, it makes zero sense. It doesn't pass the sniff test. Yeah, it doesn't look great. doesn't no. look great, no. All right, uh, I think uh, Bill Wang's had enough from us. We'll put, maybe, okay. maybe we'll be getting a call, maybe he watches this. All right, let's move on to Biden's infrastructure plan um, and kind of some, some movement uh, to the upside on the dollar. Uh, let's just go over really quick uh, the infrastructure plan because it's kind of interesting what's actually in there. So. Uh, so it gets built as a $2 trillion infrastructure plan uh, to rebuild the aging roads, bridges, rail lines, other foundations of the economy. He's called it, uh, Biden has called it a once in a generation investment in America. To give everyone some sense of the scale that we're talking here, the plan would aim to rebuild 20,000 miles of road, 10,000 bridges. It's pretty incredible. Um, uh, and I think we need it. Actually, the U.S., we currently rank 13th in terms of infrastructure, which when you consider how wealthy we are as a country, that uh, those numbers don't look great. Um, you know, the way that this is going to get paid for is a hike in uh, corporate tax rates. Looks like it's going to go from 21% to 28. Um, and even though the bulk of this spending of the $2 trillion would occur over the next eight years, it would actually take about 15 based on current estimates to recoup our investment. What are your thoughts overall on the infrastructure plan? I like it. Um, it, it presents a, a fiscal problem. The deficit grows larger and... but. I guess it's a game theory thing. What are you going to do? 
I think yeah. I, I think we probably should have been doing this stuff for the past 10 years or so. Um, but we had monetary policy holding the reins instead of fiscal. But yeah, do we need we need government to incentivize I think these types of things, high capital expenditures. I, I I used to think free markets would take care of it and you know, entrepreneurs would just basically create the technologies that help that stuff. In in some are. But on on the whole, I think if you just let the free market work and it just goes towards consumerism because it's the easiest, lowest common denominator to, to build a scalable company. So I'm for the infrastructure plan. I hope they use the money wisely. Me too. And I don't know. I, what, what's your read on if this happens forever? Does money just get handed out? Like what, what do you, what do you view, you know, more and more of this infrastructure plan stuff? I do. I view it as, um, I think, this has been outlined by a bunch of different people at this point, but I think we're seeing a transition from monetary to fiscal. Um, and then, you know, in the beginning, it's it's kind of uh, central banks, QE, base money printing, that kind of stuff that doesn't get money out into the, the broad money supply, right? So we've seen inflation in financial assets. This is kind of the next step. Uh, this is where you involve uh, fiscal and actual government spending. And that probably does get uh, real money out there. And then the, the final the final version of this would be some version of MMT, which I think they're already starting to tease at with the stimulus. And I think what a lot of people miss is if you don't think about precedent when it comes to government policy, like there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government policy. And not to be a total nerd, but if you go all the way back to Roman times, right, Caesar. Uh, so Caesar, the big thing that he did, if you heard that phrase, he crossing the Rubicon, the arrangement back in, in Roman times was that there were these generals that commanded large armies. They never, ever brought them across this river, the Rubicon. If you did, it was an overt act of war. Caesar did that. He crossed the Rubicon. He became the dictator. What people don't know is that he was actually not the first guy to do that. There was a guy before him. His name was Sulla. He did the same thing. Actually, he brought armies across the Rubicon. He did these horrible things. He called them prescriptions. He killed about 40,000 people. But then he actually gave power back. He gave the power back to the Senate. The problem is... The next guy doesn't give the power back, and he set the precedent that this is possible. So the problem is not $1,400 stimulus checks or $2,000 stimulus checks, but we've already crossed the Rubicon. It's already happened. They've already laid the infrastructure uh, to start giving people money. People are going to start expecting this stuff. I think it's already happening, and, and I'm, not, I'm not even sure that it shouldn't happen because there does need to be some leveling of the playing field. There does need to be some deleveraging of the system. So... I kind of just think it's going to happen at this point. Um, that's, yeah. I guess that's my view. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it feels like we're on the road. Yeah, I think it's almost a bipartisan thing at this fact at this joint because it's yeah. like I just think in ten years we're going to look back and we'll probably say, "Man, we should have stopped that," you know. But <laughs> for now, you know, you have low interest rates. You can take advantage of it. The dollar hasn't gotten torched. In fact, and this is where you know, leading into the dollar story. I think every time the yen, the yuan, and the euro weaken against the dollar, that gives our fiscal authorities an amazing amount of firepower to just, I'm going to issue as much debt as possible, and it's not affecting the dollar. It's not affecting our trade. We actually want our dollar weaker, in fact, because that means we can export more and growth goes higher. So I think 
we'll just see more and more of these come through. Like I actually am losing track of them because, you know, first it was a $4 trillion infrastructure plan. This one's two. He also is going to do another two for, you know, the pandemic. So I'm not, I'm losing track. I mean, it's, a, it's upwards of 10 trillion since last year, I think. Mm-hmm. And the dollar hasn't imploded just yet. I think it will, you know, my, well, my call on, on Thursday's newsletter is the dollar will roll here, I think, in the next couple of weeks because we're at extremes in the yen, the yuan, and the euro. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, talk a little bit about that. What were the implications of a stronger dollar? I think stronger dollar – Jim Rickards talked about this like years ago in this book called Currency Wars. So mm. as, as growth rates drop – your, your national growth rates drop, you end up in, there's no new technologies that are picking up the reins of growth internally in these economies. You actually end up trying to steal growth from each other using your exchange rates. So if the dollar goes up, that creates deflationary pressures in oil and gold and, you know, all the old school commodities. If the dollar goes down, that creates like the old school inflation. Vice versa, if you're the Chinese yuan, you, that's been strengthening from 2020, which causes a weaker dollar, which is why we saw the inflation narrative pick up. You know, the past couple weeks, the yuan has weakened, caused the dollar strength and, and kind of taken some deflationary or created some deflationary pressures. I still think we're in the inflationary environment, but it's all this game between push and pull between the biggest economies in the world. Hmm. So there's almost this trade-off, right, in between uh, kind of exporting power, so health of that, that core manufacturing sector, and on the other side, you're risking inflation and asset bubbles. And it seems like what the world, every every single country in the world is saying is, we want a weaker currency and we will gladly take those um, asset bubbles and inflation because nobody wants deflation right now, is what it mm-hmm. seems like. Is that an accurate view in your statement? Yeah, and that's the fascinating part is we are all relatively the, the fiat currencies are relatively traded against each other but if you price them in bitcoin it shows up the inflation shows up really quick right it does yeah and that's what's fascinating and i think the labor pools of every every economy haven't really called bs on the financial games that the governments are playing which yeah. i think they're starting to you know 15 minimum wage is is getting kicked in we're we're starting to see labor unionize like those types of things are happening uh which i don't know is a is a is a good thing in some senses i'm just afraid it goes too far down the line totally and to your point i mean one thing when you think about uh labor unions you kind of think of uh unions that support manufacturing right um because that's kind of where they first really sprung up in the United States, I think back in the the Mm thirties. But now if you look at the core composition of the S and P, if you look at the top 10 companies that makes up 50% of the S and P 500 and it's, you know, it's Facebook and it's Google and it's Amazon. And you start to think to yourself, well, I mean, it is interesting. Amazon just came out and said $15 minimum wage. Right. And you know, you could be altruistic about or have an optimistic sort of view, but I think Jeff Bezos is a pretty shrewd, smart guy. And what he's worried about is, unionization because you saw, you know, people hints about that at Google, not in any real significant way, but mm-hmm. man, if um, some form of unions came to these tech companies that are really egregiously taking advantage of labor conditions, you know, if you look at like Uber and Lyft and this whole gig economy thing, man, that would be 
wild, wouldn't it? Um, that'd be a whole new dynamic in yeah. the labor to capital shift. Yeah, and what happens to those stocks? That's nothing good. <laughs> nothing yeah. good. And that's where I'm at, where I'm, you know, if, if that labor to capital thing really happens, I, I think you had the valuations of all those companies just overshot thinking mm-hmm. everything was going to remain the same. And I think that's the biggest understated risk here is like wage inflation and food inflation causing the workforce to basically say, hey, you need to pay me more. And uh, yeah, that, that's that's going to happen no matter, no matter you like it or not. You you kind of took advantage of our of, of us for 10 years now. Yeah. So no more. Um, Enough yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's move into uh, crypto and Bitcoin for a second here. So Morgan Stanley and Goldman both moving further into Bitcoin. A couple of details here. So um, basically, Morgan Stanley said in a regulatory filing released on Thursday that 12 of its institutional funds may gain exposure to Bitcoin either through cash-settled future uh, or through GBTC. The list of funds includes Counterpoint Global, which is a $150 billion fund overseen by Dennis Lynch, which BlockWorks reported on uh, back in February. Um, I guess I guess this shouldn't really be a surprise because last month, Morgan Stanley revealed that they would begin offering some form of exposure to Bitcoin to its uh, wealthiest clients. Um, so, you know... I, I guess let's, let's get through. So Goldman is doing something very similar, right? They're also offering a form of exposure to Bitcoin. They're potentially rolling it out in Q2, I think, uh, either through. It's a little bit more interesting because they're offering uh, potentially physical Bitcoin exposure, uh, derivatives or traditional investment vehicles. You know, I'm very torn about this because on the one hand, there's obviously, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, how big would it be if Morgan Stanley, Goldman were offering Bitcoin? Oh my God, I can't believe, you know, that'd be huge, right? That'd be the biggest news. And I'm kind of surprising myself because I'm just struggling to care that much about this. Uh, I guess my deep emotion is just, well, yeah, duh, you know, of course, there's money to be made and they're moving into it. And the products that they're offering are poor. They're not very good. I guess it looks like Goldman might actually offer exposure to spot Bitcoin, but all this stuff, man, like Jeff Dorman pointed out, I guess right now GBTC is trading at a discount, so you, I guess you kind of should buy it. Um, but, you know, exposure to GBTC, is, if you bought it when you had a premium, you might have missed out on hundreds of percent uh, in return, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just am kind of, I guess my, my real actual response to this is I'm struggling to care that much that <laughs> these banks are involved. Yeah. Um, on, one, uh, on one hand... It's it's pretty incredible. Here's what I find so fascinating about Bitcoin is that it's technologically so advanced in so many ways, but like you actually are can have an edge on information and you can front run compliance departments, right? Like so we get this news now and people haven't even started buying it in their accounts yet. So you're kind of front run like if you buy Bitcoin now, you're kind of front running Goldman clients. And Here's a perfect example. It's like when Tesla announced that they bought Bitcoin, I woke up that morning and I was like, okay, I'm buying a Bitcoin. Boom. You know, <laughs> and I actually, you make money. It's like in, in the public markets, all the algos and high frequency guys, as soon as that hits the tape, everything already moves. And, and so I find it fascinating. Like this is announced and 
Bitcoin really didn't have much of a move because I don't know, I guess the money is is hard to get into the ecosystem, which is it shows that there's a, there's gaps in the on ramps and there's pricing power, right? Mm-hmm. Which which makes me even more bullish. So totally, but I agree with you. It's kind of like the headline. You're like, eh, whatever. It's this weird. You've almost you've seen mass mutual. You've seen everybody come come into the ecosystem. Yeah, or probably a little spoiled. I think we're kind of numb to it uh, right now. Mm-hmm. I think this gets back to like you and I have talked about this a lot. I think on air, off the air, but just how is Bitcoin trading right now? Like, what is really driving Bitcoin? And I think the biggest worry that I still have is when I see Bitcoin being correlated to the Nasdaq. I think is the most. Um, I just don't love seeing that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think. You know, I talked to Lynn Alden a couple of weeks ago. Her mental model for this is Bitcoin, the primary driver of Bitcoin price tends to be around, it's on this four-year supply cycle, which is anchored around the happening. And in between, right, in those general up and down movements, it tends to, you know, attach itself a little bit to other markets and get, there kind of looks like there are these temporary correlations. But at the end of the day, the real input for what's driving its price is this uh, stock to flow. Uh, kind of supply schedule so yeah i love that outlook me too it's so spot on and you know what it decoupled a little bit from nasdaq when nasdaq was falling and bitcoin held its value and, and mm. i thought i took that as a huge you know i called it divergence day like hearkening yeah. you know bill pullman's independence day speech but like that really stands as like a big divergence in my in my view where the nasdaq fell like three percent and bitcoin was up i think Mm-hmm. And that's that's huge outperformance, yeah. In my opinion. Now I'll give the other side of this coin, which is the reason why it's so important that investment banks are getting involved in this space is they will facilitate trust, right? So I, I think offering it's, I think banks offering their you know private wealth management clientele exposure to Bitcoin. That's a that's blo- I don't think that's particularly exciting in one way or another. As we both know, that doesn't even necessarily mean it's an endorsement from the bank. It just means that they think they can make money from it, right? Um, and I guess it means there's at least enough regulatory clarity that they're somewhat comfortable operating in it. But I think what will be really interesting for investment bank is when they actually start to take place, move into the the capital markets infrastructure and open trading desks and start providing liquidity. I think when, when they start doing that, then that will be really interesting. Um, because there is a place for banks in this in this space, for sure. In, in a lot of ways, we're waiting for them, um, and we have been for a long time. So I, I think what Goldman and, and Morgan Stanley are talking about right now, just offering Bitcoin exposure, not very exciting. When they move into on the capital markets, trading desk side of things, really impactful, I guess is my take. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering that. Because having seen these banks operate, they are a cluster of bureaucracy you need paperwork on paperwork on paperwork just to get more paperwork and i don't think they'll be able to like i think genesis and uh nidig and all these other companies will crush them like trading is not hard mm-hmm. i traded for 12 years you know it's you just need a big balance sheet and that's what they have i guess but like as the ecosystem keeps growing on its own, like they don't have the technology, they got to build the technology to do it. Uh, I, I don't know. I think you're already up a huge hill. So I don't need. My point being, like, 
I don't even know if it matters. Okay, here's an interesting dynamic for you, actually, because I think exactly what you just, I think banks assumed for a long time, if this becomes a thing that we need to get involved in, that we can buy our way in, right? We're not going to actually build the technology in-house. We're just going to buy our way in here, right? Mm -hmm. Buy some incumbent. The Coinbase dynamic is fascinating because the value that the market has assigned Coinbase is much larger than the incumbents. And yeah. actually, if anything, it looks like it should be the other way around. And mm -hmm. Coinbase should be acquiring CBOE or even CME or whatever. It's crazy. And, yeah. quite, and I'm wondering if uh, banks are looking and saying, oh, my God, the solution that we always thought we had, we might not be able to afford it anymore. And meanwhile, they're getting clobbered by low interest rates, right? Bad time mm -hmm. to be a, a financial. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I hadn't actually really thought of that until right now. But yeah. that's interesting. I, I mean, like that... I wrote that thing on blockchain.com the other day where they're just a better run business than all these other banks. And do you know how hard it would be? Like, here's a perfect example. Worked, worked at a giant trillion dollar asset manager. To, to get a trade settled, sometimes it took like five days of like crazy communication between like sometimes it would fail, sometimes it wouldn't. And like... That's just stuff that wouldn't happen at blockchain.com or Coinbase or whatever. You you just have it, the technologies built to settle immediately, right? Yeah. And there's so many people. Wells Fargo has like, was it 100,000 people? I got to look back at, at my note. But they have like so many employees. If you were to implement something like this, you would get everybody get their hand in it and screw it up and build it poorly. That's just how they function. It grew too big, and now it's like, you know, David and Goliath, except, you know, Goliath is just this old, giant, lumbering person that you can just take down. You know, it's 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 kind of like, uh, what's a sports team that went and aggregated all the, like, old, aging stars? You can't be asking me for sports analogies, man. I'm just Sorry. not gonna. I'm not gonna get you there. I'm not gonna get across the finish line. It's like watching Shaq in his, you know, in his 30s, where you're like, oh my god, it's Shaq. That's incredible. But then you watch him run up the floor. And you're like, he can barely run. That's how I view like all these companies. Like you hear Goldman Sachs, and you think, think, sure, they make a lot of money, but like, what are they doing that's new besides like bringing in IPOs or going out of style, you can do a direct listing. Like yeah. they must, okay. in the boardrooms, you must sit there and be like, God, what are we gonna do in 10 years? Okay, you want a sports analogy? Here's one. It's like <laughs> watching Tom Brady try to run. A big Brady guy, but watching that guy try to move, Dude. it's like he's moving in slow motion or in molasses or something. You're like, is yeah. this the same frame of motion that everyone else on this field is moving? Like, buddy. <laughs> like I can run faster than that. Like I can run faster than that. Christ yeah. almighty. Um, and he's still a goat though. So, all right, we're running low on time and I actually wanna to get to this last thing, which, okay, here's a, an actual significant impactful um, announcement that's coming out of crypto. So Visa announced they will now settle payments in USDC on the Ethereum blockchain. This is significant. So here are the details of actually what's going on. Visa's conducting a pilot program with crypto.com that will allow them to settle payments on their credit cards in USDC. So before this, Crypto.com, they have a credit card program with Visa, had to settle in fiat currency. So basically, they're going through conversions, right, which adds a whole bunch of different costs and complexity. Um, and now they're just allowing um, 
them to settle in USDC as kind of the base settlement asset, which is huge. Um, uh, Visa settlement agent for USDC is the crypto bank Anchorage. A lot of interesting stuff coming out of Anchorage these days, which means that basically just crypto.com will send USDC to Visa's Ethereum account at Anchorage. And eventually, uh, Visa has said that they plan to allow settlements in CBDCs as well. This is that see that is like a core infrastructure not very sexy thing which is like oh my god so yeah. here's my take on this here's why I think this is impactful hit me um, number one this is just on ramps right this is a huge on ramp Visa's payment network is massive I don't even know how many merchants they work with but it's in the millions or if not tens of millions I'm gonna look this up I'll probably find it's even more it's a colossal number of people number two this eliminates a whole ton of frictions for crypto companies. We talked with Rain Steinberg, CEO at Arca the other day, who's actually working on treasury management for crypto native companies and then manage a huge portion of their treasury in either Bitcoin and Ethereum or USDC like stable coins. Interfacing with the fiat world when your reserve asset is in crypto is really rough. This is a huge step to be able to settle payments in USDC, which is just a better system, by the way, um, is really really impactful i think mm-hmm. um and i don't know man i think overall when it comes to payments like this is kind of the next step right i am not one of the people who's like oh speculation that's so bad speculation is the mechanism that brings the people in but eventually we need to get to payments that was the big that's one of the big promises here right mm-hmm. and now it seems like that's actually coming to fruition which is really really exciting and the thing about payments is the reason why when you go to pay you have like 10 different options. Oh, you want to do Apple Pay, you want to do Venmo, you want to do this credit card, whatever, is because people understand that the more options that you allow people to pay in, the less friction there will be and the more sales will actually happen. Like the game of payments is all about eliminating frictions. And to me, Visa allowing people to settle in USDC is basically a big affirmation that there is a colossal amount of demand um, for this new economy. Mm-hmm. So like this, not the sexiest thing, but good work, Visa. This is big. This is yeah. a big deal. Big I deal. Good work. <laughs> you know, it, it, that's almost one of those moments where, I don't know, Netflix goes from DVDs to just streaming. And if you get it, you know, I think the market hated it at the time where it was like, oh, Netflix is not doing their DVDs shipping anymore. They're going to do the streaming thing. But it's like, oh, my God, light bulb moment. Everything's going streaming. Mm -hmm. And the market doesn't really care now. But like five years down the line, they're going to be like, that's the seminal moment. Like that really changed it. And I think this is one of them, too. I mean, I couldn't agree more with you. It's just funny the market doesn't react to that. I think the market is scarred from these. Back in 2017, there would be these announcements coming out of financial service firms. They'd be like, blockchain POC. And everyone in the industry would be like, oh my God, such bull. It doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> Nothing, right? It's a bit of PR. Uh, and I think the, the market is still overall scarred, and that's the knee jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you really started to pay attention, this is changing. Like, even if you just, like, we talked to a lot of financial services firms, and it, it, even a year ago, you know, people ask, well, what, what, you know, what department are they working in? And there was no department. You were talking to the crypto guy at these, at these banks who was desperately trying to get buy-in from his colleagues or, or her colleagues about how they can move this stuff forward internally. 
That's not the case anymore. There are teams. Mm -hmm. This is all happening at the board, you know, C-suite board level. It's changing. And that's something that you don't necessarily see uh, from a public standpoint, but inter I mean, it's, it's big. It's big. Um, I couldn't agree more. You, you know what? Speaking of which, I think we need, and there's a huge demand in this industry, and it's part of the thing that we're trying to cover at BlockWorks, but when you get some of these PR people writing like PR uh, releases for the, the digital asset companies, it's like in Swahili sometimes. And I'm like, what, what are you trying to say here? Like some weird link between this, you know, crazy altcoin and this other one. And I'm like, tell me why I should care. Like how maybe, you know what? Reach out to Blockworks. We're all set up a PR. We'll tell you exactly what you're working on as your project in <laughs> English. Get rid of these. I, I don't want any more of these PR people hitting me on like, I, no offense. Like I, I know you provide a service, but like break it down in plain English, you know? Right? Uh, yeah. Because yeah. you think you're going to translate that to a mass audience. Like, come on. There's some, there's some guys that do it really well. I've got to, and there's a premium for that, but I agree. I this, agree. This, this, this is huge news. This is, huge. you know, who, who made me laugh actually, uh, Paul Singer on an episode of Grant Williams the other week was like, I'm getting these things about crypto that looks like this Babylonian text. And I <laughs> He's like, these smart people are sending me these Babylonian texts. And I just, I completely hear him. You, you know what it's like? It's just like, you're too close to it. And you can't, you forget what it's like outside of that world. That's exactly right. And I, that's probably what I just did with Archegos in the beginning of this interview. It's <laughs> too close to it. I, I think people the, understood. People yeah. did. People did. Yeah. I, I think you, you know, you get really deep into something, you forget what the actual like civilian level of knowledge is. But. Yeah. All right, man, we got to wrap it up. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't even get to talk about your kids. Your sleep habits, I feel like these are the things I'm, I'm curious about. I just want to make sure you're getting enough sleep. Yeah, are, you, are you getting enough sleep? How's the power washing going? Are you the, <laughs> you know what? That power washer was the best purchase I think we ever made. I'm like so happy about this power you washer. You don't work out anymore after work. You just go power wash. No, I just, go, I just go power wash the porch. Yeah, just you know, up and down. I got like my, my noise-canceling headphones. I'm, I'm <laughs> I got to get you a pair of galoshes to go with those <laughs> Well, I, I told you we're in a bit of a battle with the, the neighbors about the power washing, but we oh, handily yeah. won the battle. Yeah, we're two weeks in. We might be the victor. Uh, someone, someone's already coming out on top of that little uh, power washing battle. So, um, yeah, be warned. Um, all right, Tyler, as always, this has been a ton of fun. Until, until next week, my friend. All right. See you guys.